0: The Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 12, questions 31 and 32. Let us pray together. Lord Jesus, we now embark upon the study of these great and marvelous doctrines, and these are they which relate to who Thou art in Thy person and Thy offices. O Lord, as our mediator between Thy Father and our Father and us. O Lord, Thou art great, our Savior, our Redeemer, our King, our Prophet, our Great High Priest. We ask for Thy blessing and Thy help Tonight, that as we study this catechism, we would take the biblical truths found therein and look to Thee with greater love, greater worship and reverence and awe for who Thou art, and we would live in gratitude to Thee. Mm. We thank Thee again for this time together. We ask, O oh Lord. We ask, Holy Spirit, that wouldst bless us, write these truths upon our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Lord's Day 12. <clears throat> Dear congregation, in our last sermon on the Catechism, Lord's Day 11, many months back ago before this plague, we studied that most wonderful name, the name Jesus which is the personal name of our divine Redeemer. We were taught its meaning, that it was given to him because he is the Joshua. That's what Jesus means. The Joshua of the new covenant, who leads his people, us, believers, into the spiritual promised promised land. Much better than the country that they were promised to the nation of Israel. The country that was promised to the nation of Israel was earthly, But we are looking for a better country, namely, an heavenly one. We also learned that he is named Jesus because he is the one who saves his people from their sins. But there is another title of Christ, another title of his that we must study and that all believers know equally well. It is a title which fosters our faith in and praise of Jesus, our divine redeemer. It greatly confirms our trust in Him and stirs up our gratitude to Him. It must be studied, this title of Christ, for not only the masses, but even many Christians have great confusion concerning this title, or maybe they think it's the last name of Jesus of Nazareth. This title is that most wonderful of titles, Christ. Every true believer daily confesses, I believe, In Jesus Christ. The name Jesus is personal of the second person of the divine Godhead. Who was incarnate for our salvation and for our comfort. But this title, namely Christ, is that from which even we borrow our own title, Christian. Yea, let all of the titles which we take, all other titles no matter how helpful or fitting they may be, perish, and this one remain. Calvinists, no doubt we are, Reformed, Baptist even, but more than these, Christian. We take this title through union to Jesus and the typological continuity, which we'll look at next week with his offices that we have. The typological continuity between our offices as Christians and his offices as Christ, the Christ. So, this one singular title defines who we are and what we are to do, who we are to be. Truly, it is worshipful. It is worship for us to even utter these words I am a Christian. It is the summation of Heidelberg, question one, to say, I am a Christian. It is the fullness of all orthodox profession to say that I am a Christian. To say that I am a Christian is to say, I am all of his and none of mine. May he increase and I decrease. Mm. Let's now read Lord's Day 12. If you have the Reformation Heritage Study Bible, it's found on page 1992. Question 31 of Lord's Day 12. Why is he called Christ, that is, anointed? Answer, because he is ordained of God the Father and anointed with the Holy Ghost to be our chief prophet and teacher who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption and to be our only high priest who by the one sacrifice of his body has redeemed us and makes continual intercession with the Father for us. And also to be our eternal king, who governs us by his word and spirit, and who defends and preserves us in the enjoyment of that salvation he has purchased for us. Question 32. But why art thou called a Christian? Answer. Because I am a member of Christ by faith, and thus am partaker of his anointing, that so I may confess his name and present myself a living sacrifice of thankfulness to him, And also that with a free and good conscience I may fight against sin and Satan in this life and afterwards reign with him eternally over all creatures. Our catechism's questions teach us four lessons, only two of which we will get to tonight. The other two we will take next week. Number one, the anointing of Christ. The anointing of Christ Number two, the offices of Christ. Number three, the anointing of believers. And number four, the offices of believers. So tonight we will only be looking at the first two points, the anointing of Christ and the offices of Christ. So first, the anointing of Christ or the anointing of Jesus. The first part of our catechism's answer to the 31st question, the 31st question why is he called Christ that is anointed, is this. Because he is ordained of God the Father and anointed with the Holy Ghost. That's how they begin their answer. So what is Christ, anointed? How do we define that? What do we understand by the term Christ? What does it mean? It's a Greek term, Christos, which is an adjective that here is taken as a noun, a proper name even, coming from the verb chrio, I anoint or I apply oil to. Therefore, Christ means anointed one. It translates the Hebrew term, Mashiach, which means the same thing, anointed with oil. So though it means one anointed with oil, among the Hebrews of the Old Testament, the term took on a particular dignified meaning. Because God had ordained that any person designated to the high calling of prophet, priest, or king should be consecrated or ceremonially, con- ceremonially confirmed in their several offices by the pouring of oil on their heads. As the word of Jehovah, touch not mine anointed, and do my prophets no harm in 1 Chronicles 16.22. In Hebrew parallelism, the two terms are used synonymously in this passage. To be a prophet... In other words, we are reading in First Chronicles 16.22, to be a prophet is to be an anointed one, called by God and set apart from the people for a specific office. Now, though Scripture does not confirm that every prophet of the Old Testament was given this outward sign, we know that many were. Remember, Elisha was anointed by his predecessor, Elijah. This anointing came to be synonymous with, For the Jews in the Old Testament, with the person of the Mashiach, the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ who was to come. Isaiah 61, verse 1 The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach glad tidings, the Messiah says about himself. With reference to the priests of the Old Testament, we can authoritatively say that they were all anointed with oil, set apart and consecrated. To their office. Thus, the Lord, having directed Moses to make a compound of olive oil and many other precious spices, says this: that it would be an holy anointing oil. He said, "Thou shalt anoint Aaron and his sons, and consecrate them; set them apart, that they may minister unto me in the priest's office." Exodus thirty thirty. Now, when we compare that passage with the correspondence passages in Exodus 39 and Leviticus 8, we learn that the anointing oil, mingled with the blood of the sacrifice itself, was sprinkled upon the priestly garments of both Aaron and his sons, their right ear, their right thumb, and their right big toe. But the fragrant oil, that fragrant oil that was unmingled with blood, was poured upon the head of Aaron alone as a typological representative of the high priest who was to come. Psalm 133, verses 1 and 2 make reference to this. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard that went down to the skirts of his garments. Now some argue that not all priests were consecrated in the same way. There's not really much evidence one way or another. But to the consecration of the high priest, we do know that this anointing was essential. The kings were also uniformly anointed. Samuel anointed by divine command, first Saul, and then afterwards David as well to be king over Israel. Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anointed Solomon. Elijah anointed King Hazael to be king over Syria and Jehu to be king over Israel. So we may believe, I think with good reason, that the custom was perpetuated, at least until the apostasy that furthered the the degeneracy of the nation of Israel. In Psalm 2, verse 6, Jehovah declares this, Yet I have set, literally in the Hebrew, I have anointed my king upon my holy hill of Zion. He calls Cyrus his anointed. And many other scriptures show that the term was applied to those gifted by the special revelation or providence of God with kingly power. They were always anointed. So the Messiah, the Christ, who was to be anointed with oil, so much so that his own title is the Anointed One, was anointed. That Messiah would be a mighty king was declared by the dying Jacob concerning Judah he said the scepter shall not depart from judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet from between his feet meaning from among his descendants until shiloh that is the priest the, the peace bringer come and unto him shall the gathering of the people or the gentiles be genesis 49:10 from the inspired testimony of moses it was also known that while a king messiah was also to be a prophet Deuteronomy 18.15 says this, The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me. Unto him shalt thou hearken. That Messiah was to be a priest, they naturally inferred, from the state of their own nation. That it was sacred. And the unchangeable rule that all approaches to God, the people of Israel knew this, that all approaches to God and all blessings from God were to be had only through the mediation of the high priest. So, of course, their Messiah would also be a priest. Remember, David said, The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, Psalm 110, verse 4. And Zechariah also says, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne. And he shall be a priest upon his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them, God and his people. But more on these three offices of Christ later. Next, our catechism states that Christ, the chief anointed of God, was ordained of God the Father. He was ordained of God the Father. This is a reference to, in Reformed theology, covenant theology, what we call the pactum salutis the covenant of redemption the plan of salvation which was made between the father and the son and i always like to add the holy spirit and this was made in eternity and this pact this pactum salutis this plan of redemption was a was a plan made between the triune god that a work of salvation would eventually be worked for fallen men wherein the son of god the second person of the Holy Trinity, would be sent by the Father, become incarnate on earth, live and die for his elect. But the Son, the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus, did not take this office to himself. He didn't say, I'll do it. It wasn't him that took it on of his own willing desire. Rather, he was appointed to it by his father and obeyed and agreed with that covenant. The gospel of John in specific is replete with direct statements from Jesus's own mouth that he was sent or ordained by the father to accomplish his earthly task of redemption. Think of John six twenty seven, twenty nine, fifty seven, 29, 57, John 8:29 and 24 and 42. There's a whole bunch According to the plan of redemption, the pactum salutis, in which the Son, as the representative of servants, takes officially the place of a servant, he could not assume the mediatorship without the appointment, or as our catechism says, the ordination of the Father. And the Father represents the majesty of the Godhead. He is the fount of the Godhead. The Apostle Paul writes in Hebrews 5, 4 and 5 No man taketh this honour the high priesthood unto himself but he that is called of God as was Aaron so also Christ glorified not himself to be made an high priest but he that said unto him thou art my son today have i begotten thee as he saith also in another place thou art a priest forever after the order of melchizedek now melchizedek was the priest of the most high god And also the king of Salem, that is, king of peace. And we may add a prophet, for he blessed Abraham. Mm. So Melchizedek was prophet, priest, and king. From this appointment or ordination of God, our Savior's office derived its validity. And on its validity, divine validity, depended its efficacy. The Emmanuel, the Christ, "...is mighty to save, not merely because of his own righteousness, but because the Father sent him to save, and covenanted to accept him as the surety for his people. His works were not his own exclusively, but the works which his Father had given him to do. And when he had accomplished them, they gave him, the accomplishing of those works gave him the legal right to save. The legal right to save." as the mediator. Furthermore, our catechism tells us that not only was Christ ordained of God the Father, but that he was also anointed with the Holy Ghost. He was anointed with oil later in his ministry by a certain woman who stood at his feet behind him, weeping and began to wash his feet with tears and did wipe them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Luke 4.38 1438. But he was foremost anointed with the Holy Spirit as a sign, as a sign of his appointment to his office by his Father, and a fulfillment of all the Old Testament official anointings. It was necessary that his appointment to the office of mediator should be confirmed and assured to us, since we could not rely upon him as our mediator until we knew that he was appointed by the Father to be the mediator. Hence, his public inauguration with the anointing of the Holy Ghost, which the Old Testament anointings typified, was necessary. It was necessary. After he had reached the proper age, some think about 30, and accepted baptism from the Baptist, John the Baptist, and fulfilled all the preliminary righteousness that was required... It came to pass as he went up from the water in the sight of a vast multitude that the heaven was opened, and the Holy Ghost in bodily shape like a dove descended upon him, and a voice from heaven came which said, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee am I well pleased. Now, notice this that the dove like glory, the Holy Spirit in bodily form descending upon him, did not reascend. Did not reascend. It remained upon him as the oil upon the prophet, priest, and kings of the Old Testament. Now, this unction, this anointing of the Holy Ghost was his anointing, and with the proclamation from heaven, constituted his inauguration into the Messiahship or into the office of Christ. We have here a direct fulfillment of that prophecy which all of the ancient Jews even universally applied to the Messiah. That's why it was so shocking when Jesus stood up in the temple and read this and said, this is me. Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn. Instead of the Messiah the Christ Now this anointing was practical had purpose though through the through the holy spirit's power he did all of his mighty works and it was not until this anointing took place that he did any works just as the anointing with oil in the old testament upon the prophets priests prophets priests and kings accompanied the promises of jehovah that the one anointed would be strengthened with power to fulfill that calling, so too the Holy Spirit remained upon Christ Jesus to strengthen his human nature, his body, and his soul for his work. And it rendered all his righteousness a sweet-smelling savor to God. Acceptable. Because they were the perfect merits of the Savior, the Christ, the Messiah, who was ordained of God The Father. Now that's a lot to take in. This is a lot to take in. And that's why I had to break up this Lord's Day into two weeks. Because we're about ready to enter into the second point. But we need to take a moment to let that sink in. That Christ was ordained of the Father and empowered, anointed with the Holy Spirit. Inaugurated, to be the Christ, the mediator, declared to be so. What glory is this that we see? What cause for praise to flow out of our mouths to our Savior? What reason to trust Christ Jesus? What motivation to live by that same anointing, the Spirit through which and by which He lived and worked? The same Spirit that was in Him Is in us. Second, the offices of Christ. So we looked at the anointing of Christ. Here's the offices of Christ. He is called Christ because the Holy Ghost anointed him, and our confession goes on, to be our chief prophet and teacher who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption, and to be our only high priest who by the one sacrifice of his body has redeemed us and makes us con- and makes continual intercession with the father for us and also to be our eternal king who governs us by his word and spirit and who defends and preserves us in the enjoyment of that salvation he has purchased for us now we enter into the threefold office of Christ the threefold office of Christ we could preach an entire Sermon or a series of sermons on each one of these offices. And I would like to do that sometime. But due to our time tonight together, we will only be able to scratch the surface of these three offices in this sermon. But do not assume that the fact that we can only say a few things about the threefold office of Christ as mediator takes away from their importance in any way. Whatsoever. In my opinion, the threefold office of Christ as mediator between God and man is the most rich and the most deeply important doctrine in all of Scripture. It is that Mount Everest of the Scriptures. First office, prophet or teacher. Now, the word prophet did not originally have the connotation that it has today, largely due to Pentecostalism's influence in American evangelicalism. The prophet simply means to tell the future. It is not equivalent to predicting the future. Even the common Greek word used in the New Testament for prophet, prophetis, does not have this connotation as its primary meaning. In fact, prophetis simply means a forth one who speaks truth forth, one who proclaims comes from two words, pro, which is before, forth, forward, in front of, and fimi, I speak, I tell, I say. Thus, a prophet is one who sets forth the will and the word of God. That's all it means. Sometimes that includes or included in forming a future judgment or future blessing. But primarily, it had to do with the setting forth of the will of God and the word of God. Moses is the great Old Testament prophet. The five first books of the Old Testament are from that prophet's mouth and pen. Moses is the great Old Testament prophet who declares to Israel and to us the word of God. So too, Christ is the greater and the true prophet of God. Jesus Christ is a prophet in that he is the one, as the catechism puts it, who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption. Remember, Jesus Christ is the full revelation of God. He is the word of God who was with God and was God, John 1.1. 1, 1. He is the word which God has spoken to us in these last days, Hebrews 1.2. The brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, verse 2. Verse 2. The very image of the invisible God, the one in whom all the fullness of deity dwells, Colossians 1, 15 and 19. He is God manifest in the flesh, 1 Timothy three sixteen. The incarnate word of God, John 1.14, The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father. The one who fully declares the Father to the world, John 1, 18. So both in his actions and in his words, in all things that he heard from his Father, he has made them known unto us, John fifteen fifteen. The secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption is expounded, is laid forth, is made known to the world and especially to the elect, to believers, through Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of their faith, their prophet. Now this he did by the Holy Spirit, that anointing, the Spirit of Christ, as the New Testament often calls him. Who made and who makes it effectual. He made that word, that prophesying of Christ, that revelation of God's secret will and counsel concerning our redemption, which Christ gave forth, effectual, and he still makes it effectual. He being the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, This same Spirit still speaks to us through the written Word. The Spirit of Christ speaks to us through the written written Word, which He inspired. The Word, the prophecy, which men moved by the Holy Ghost wrote down aforetime for our learning that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. 2 Timothy 3.16, 2 Peter 1.21, and Romans 15.4. This Word... This word of the Spirit of Christ is quick, living, and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of joints and the marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Hebrews 4.12 So, we should give more earnest heed to the Scriptures. Why? Because they are the prophetic word of the highest prophet, Jesus Christ who is himself the Word of God. Jesus still prophesies to us when we open the book and put our elbows on either side of it and read it and pray. He's high priest. It's the next office. He's high priest. I think that this is the most essential office for us as sinners, if we hope to be anything but sinners. The Catechism adds that Jesus Christ was ordained of the Father and anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our only high priest who by the one sacrifice of his body has redeemed us and makes continual intercession with the Father for us. So as the Old Testament priests of old mediated between the people and God offering sacrifices and burnt offerings and blood for their sins and interceded, On their behalf in prayer, so too Christ offers himself for us as a sacrifice on our behalf, redeeming us from the curse, redeeming us from the punishment of the law for our sins, and interceding for us before the Father, interceding for us with the Father. The Old Testament high priests were typical, typical meaning they typified, they were a type an allegory, a foreshadowing. The Old Testament high priests were typical. The Christ is their fulfillment. The former pointed to the latter Christ declares as complete. In his body, his earthly life, he fulfilled all righteousness on our behalf. Matthew five seventeen and Matthew three fifteen. He fulfilled all righteousness, perfectly obeying the law of God declared by the prophet Moses, of whom he is the greater. Every moment, loving the Lord his God with all his heart, his soul, his strength, and mind, and loving his neighbor as himself, which is the fulfilling of all the law and the prophets, as Jesus himself says in Matthew 22, 37-40. Thus, in his body... Jesus obtained perfect righteousness for us on the one hand, and in his body on the other hand, he suffered and died the death we deserve, paying the ransom of all the elect's sins, drinking down the wrath of God his Father for us, doing away with them. And as high priest, he led them away into the desert, placing them as far from us in God's sight as the east is from the west. As he said in Mark 10:45, even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many, on behalf of many, in place of many. And the Apostle Paul said, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him, 2 Corinthians 5.21. After His death, He, in His body, arose from the dead, sealing and confirming our justification by grace through faith in Him. Now, dear believer, we stand redeemed, justified, righteous, without sin, and positively holy, before God by the work which Christ did in his body for us. He died as the propitiation for our sins, 1 John 2, 2, so that we now have access to the throne of grace, which we may now, through his sacrifice, boldly approach Hebrews 4, 16. Not only this, but Christ also actively, our Catechism says, makes continual intercession with the Father for us. So he did the work, attaining righteousness for us. Now we have his righteousness. And doing away with our sin, drinking it down the dregs of the wrath of God for us, for our sins. He did that. But now he continually makes intercession for us with the Father. But we should dispel, and I will do that now, a common Misconception of this point of Jesus interceding for us with the Father. The fact that Christ continually intercedes for us before the Father does not mean that he placates and pleads and grovels before his angry and wrathful Father, who at every moment desires to put us to the sword and cast us into the eternal flames of hell, and that Jesus must continually talk his Father down, off of this ledge. No, it doesn't mean that at all. It means that Christ stands before the Father in heaven. That same Father who loves us and has adopted us as his own children in Christ, he stands before his Father as a continual and permanent declaration that he has finished the work of redemption that the Father gave him to do. John 17:4. So listen, this is really important here to understand this. His glorification to the right hand of God is his continual intercession. No charge can now be laid against us by sin or by Satan because Christ has atoned for our sins and has been risen from the dead by the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit and has ascended to the right hand of God Almighty, the Father on high. He is the permanent and continual justification of his people. A continual intercession. He is the Lamb of God slain from before the foundation of the world. Who drank the wrath of God on behalf of his people. Who then rose from the dead. Ascended to heaven. And now stands as an intercession. As a propitiation. It's a monument. The fact that he is there is a monument. A receipt, if you will. That it is done. The Old Testament priests. Had to continually bring in new sacrifices. On behalf of the people. It is said by some. Ancient Jewish commentators that. During certain times of the year. Certain Jewish festivals. Especially the day of atonement. That the. Streets. Would run as rivers of blood. However. However. Christ, because he continueth forever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. What does that mean, the uttermost? Let's just stay there for a moment. The uttermost. Meaning there is none too bad and none that no sins that we do after. No matter how much sin... He is able to discharge it, to pay that debt. As John Flavel, the Puritan, famously said in that little dialogue he wrote, a fictional dialogue of the Father and the Son in the Pactum Salutis discussing what should happen. Jesus is portrayed as saying, Father, bring in all thy bills that I shall know what they owe thee. And I shall pay them, I shall undertake for them and pay them all, every last mite, every last penny that there be no after reckonings with them to the uttermost. The father responds, Son, this shall prove to be an undoing to thee. And if I spare them, I shall not spare you. And he says, content, father. I'm willing to undertake it and am able to discharge it. The same Christ which died for us yesterday, Still is the propitiation for our sins today dear Christian. Tonight, tomorrow, if we be Christ, none can pluck us from his hand. Seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them, for such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily, as those high priests, to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins, and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. So what they mean here in the authorized version, for such an high priest became us, meaning it was most suitable to us. It is most becoming for our condition. Because if we choose any other mediator than this one, the one whom God has given, the one whom God is, mm. then we will not have a sufficient mediator, a sufficient high priest. This he did once. Once. When he offered up himself. So Christ's one sacrifice was sufficient. And our justification is continually and eternally founded upon it. Was, is, and shall be. In this way and through the spirit of Christ. Which maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Romans 8.26. It is through this that Jesus makes continual intercession for us. His elect people. His last office is eternal king. By his ordination of God the Father and the anointing with the Holy Ghost, Christ is also our eternal king who governs us by his word and spirit and who defends and preserves us in the enjoyment of that salvation he has purchased for us, our our catechism states. He is the greater king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. He is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament kings over the physical and temporary nation of Israel. The true king over all spiritual Israel, the church, his body, and his bride, we who believe upon him. He is the eternal king, set up, ordained, appointed, and installed by God upon his holy hill of Zion, Psalm 2.6. Jesus shall and was Jesus shall as was announced to Mary by the angel in Luke 1:32 and 33 be great Jesus shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there shall be no end So Jesus the Christ is king to govern us by his word. Which word lays forth the moral commandments of God. And by his spirit, the catechism says. And that spirit makes us willing and able to not only believe his word, but obey it. Convicting us of sin, righteousness, and eternal life. He is king. Christ is king to protect, preserve, and provide for us. Staving off the devil. the devil, Staving off the devil who desires to sift us as wheat preserving us in faith and holiness, providing for our physical and spiritual needs. He is the author as well as the finisher of our faith. Nothing shall pluck us from his hand. No devil, no man, no famine, no necessity, not even ourselves. Because he is our king, we can be confident of this very thing, that he, Jesus, which hath begun a good work in us, will perform it, or finish it, until the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians 1.6 Dear believer, he is king to make us reign as kings and as princes alongside him in the eternal kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth, with our resurrection and glorification. We are in good hands with Christ as our savior and our king who was ordained and anointed by God. Indeed, the one at whose name every knee should bow of things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth and that, at, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father who has ordained him as mediator. Philippians two ten and 11. Now, as George Bethune closes his commentary on this question and answer, I will read. Quote, Thus, it is our privilege, beloved Christians, to see in Christ all that is necessary for his office as our Savior. What he promises, he obtains. What he obtains, he secures for all those who put their trust in him. The covenant of our redemption is made, not between us and the Father, but between the Father and Son incarnate as our mediator with the Father. The hope of the true believer, therefore, cannot fail. For it is established on the truth, the merits, and the power of him whom the Father has by the Holy Spirit, anointed to be our prophet, our priest, and our king. So from first to last, our salvation is Jesus Christ. Jesus the Christ. Our salvation is not dependent upon us, as Spurgeon so often said. It is not our holding on to Christ that saves us, but his holding on to us thus we can once again ask ourselves what is thy only comfort in life and death answer that i with body and soul both in life and death am not my own but belong unto my faithful savior jesus christ who with his precious blood hath fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation. And therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus we thank thee for who thou art and thy offices and thy work Mm. oh to have a greater vision to have more devotion for this to be a greater reality upon us a greater weight of glory that we know thee that we love thee that we serve thee Forgive thou me for my poor attempt at laying forth thy threefold office, O Jesus. Words fail in describing who thou art and what thou hast done. So we stand in worship and in awe, asking for help by by thy power, O Holy Spirit, to lead us, to guide us in all righteousness, to grant us faith and love, and joy, and peace, mm-hmm. obedience. We love thee. We praise thee, O Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.